Good morning, church. My name is John Ross. I'm the assistant pastor here. Excited to be able to preach this morning. If you would, open your Bibles with me to Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. We're doing a new uh, short tag team series I'll be preaching this week. And Brian Burrell and Evan Angeli will be preaching in the weeks to follow. And it's called Come Together, Loving Each Other in an Age of Isolation and Division. Now, some of us may feel this more than others, but we are just in a time that we're, many more people are becoming isolated, and in that isolation, we are becoming divided from one another. So think about just some of these facts. The National Institute on Drug Abuse has been studying teens since 1976. And since the invention of the iPhone in 2007, teenagers have become less likely to hang out with friends, less likely to get a driver's license, more likely to feel lonely, left out, and distressed. And it turns out that the more time teens spend looking at screens, the more likely they are to report symptoms of depression. Maybe some of you have experienced that as well. The more time you spend online, the more you feel depressed. On the other end of the age spectrum, perhaps for different reasons, a study by the AARP says that approximately 42.6 million adults over the age of 45 in the United States are estimated to be suffering from chronic loneliness. And the bulk of that population is age 45 to 50. Now, I don't pretend to be a doctor or a statistician or a technology expert, but those who occupy such professions are saying that as a society, we have a problem. And whether by choice or by chance, we are becoming more isolated. So just over the next few weeks, we just want to consider some of the things that are causing this from a spiritual standpoint. In other words, how as we as believers can we become more or come together? Let's read Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's go to him now in prayer. Lord, we humble ourselves before you and before your word. And Lord, we just confess even now that we are not worthy of the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word this morning and that you would change us to be a more unified church. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Well, t- today in today's sermon, I'd like for us to consider how humility begets unity. And we see this here in our passage. I'm going to argue that the unified church has a shared mind and a shared posture because it has a shared Savior. So three points, shared mind, shared posture, shared Savior. How can we have a unified first uh, church? First, a shared mind. As we look at verses 1 and 2, we see that Paul is positioning his appeal by, appointing, or by pointing us to the benefits of relational harmony. Benefits that the believer already experiences. There's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And this if isn't a conditional statement, as if uh, there were no comfort in Christ or comfort in love, or if there were no encouragement from Christ. It, it might be something that maybe you use with your kids sometimes. Like, so a lot of times I'll say, if you want dessert, you're going to need to clean up the table. There's no question of whether or not they want dessert, but that's just how I'm phrasing it to get them to think about what they're doing and what they need to do. Now, in, uh, in doing this, he's prompting us to consider the benefits of unity in Christ. And as we go through these, consider these for yourself. I'll ask you, have you experienced encouragement in Christ? Yes. Has love ever been a comfort to you? I hope so. Have you participated in the Spirit who comes alongside us as a helper and counselor to our souls? Have you experienced the joy of affection? Have you experienced the consolation of a sympathetic friend? If you have experienced these things uh, that Paul is saying, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Paul wants to be clear about what he's asking us to do. Look there in verse 2. He doesn't just say same mind. What else does he say? Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It's almost as if Paul is expecting pushback to this request. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll be of the same mind. I'll, I'll conclude the same kinds of theological thoughts, but I'm not really going to care for everybody. Uh, that's just, that's beyond me. I'm not going to care for people. Well, no, Paul says, be of the same love. Well, maybe I'll conclude the same things and, you know, care about some people, but I'm really going to gripe and complain when things don't go the way I want them to. No, he says, be of full accord. Now, in our age, it seems like this can't be right. How can this be so? How can it be that we could be of the same mind and have the same love? Maybe you're thinking, John, you know, I think you're taking this a little too far. Well, let's, let me just give you some passages, and I'm going to read through these quickly. You can write them down if you don't believe me. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Romans 15, 5 through 7, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another. Philippians 2, 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Paul warns in 1 Timothy 6, 4 against those who have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. 
2 Timothy 2.14, he says, Quarrels about words do no good and only ruin the hearers. Proverbs 20, verse 3, It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. Friends, this is what Scripture says about unity and agreement. In our opinionated and divisive world, how, how is this practically possible? How can we do this? This mutual mindset can only be found if we look outside of ourselves. We have to look to Christ. Now, we can tend to think of it uh, in a different way. What's natural to us is to think, well, if we are all to be in one agreement, then we should probably come up with a very detailed list of theological points, and then everybody has to subscribe to every single one of them, and there can't be any kind of wavering, and everybody will just assimilate. Or we can say, you know, we've all got different views. Let's just not talk about them. Uh, we'll, we'll come to a different agreements, you know, together. We'll agree to disagree, and we'll just be together, and we won't encourage each other towards any kind of particular understanding. But both of these approaches assume a man-centered approach. The first says that we might be intelligent enough to actually fully understand God and understand the Scriptures, and that we could be totally right without any kind of question about whether or not we could be wrong. And the second says that each man's individual truth is right for him. We can just all kind of come to our own conclusions, and that'll be right, and that'll be good. But the mutual mindset that we need to find is outside of ourselves. It's in Christ. Look at verse 5. Have what? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What kind of mind is this? It's a mind of humility. It's a mind of self-sacrifice. It's a mind of serving others. And just as Paul calls the church the body and Christ its head, so we should consider that proper coordination and unity within the body will only happen if Christ is our guiding standard and instructor. As we think about disagreement, we need not forget that at the root of each of our Christian lives is a confession. I I got it wrong, and I'm sorry. And when we come to Christ, what are we saying? I thought that sin would lead to life. I got it wrong. Lord, forgive me. When we confess our sin to the Lord, I thought that I would do better by sinning against you. I thought I could circumnavigate and get to God's goodness by sinning against him. Lord, I, I got it wrong. I'm sorry. When we have disagreements with friends, we come to them and say, I got it wrong and I'm sorry. There's a pattern of confession and repentance in our lives. And it should come to no surprise to us that we could be wrong about some of the conclusions that we hold. We've been wrong about so many things in the past. <laughs> but so often we puff ourselves up with the knowledge that we have and we just will not listen to others. It should come as no surprise to us that we could be wrong about some conclusions along the way and therefore disagree. But in doing so, we, we need not disagree on third-tier issues or things that wouldn't affect our unity in Christ. We need to remember our propensity to be wrong and look to Jesus together. Together. We need to have the same mind, same love, to be of full accord and to be of one mind. Christ-likeness is the key to that kind of unity. And as we'll see in a few moments, that requires humility. So let's consider how we're not only to be of a shared mind, but also of a shared posture 
And that shared posture is one of humility. Verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul is juxtaposing two ideas here. There's the idea of doing things for yourself. Numero uno comes first, looking out for number one. Doing things for our own reasons and for our own glory. And then there's another way, a way of humility. So do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, this is the countercultural idea that Christianity brings to the world. Your life is not about you. You serve a God who came to serve. You serve a servant. Shouldn't it be expected that we should serve this Savior who is a servant? 1 Corinthians 10, 24, it says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, is there some things that we can do from rivalry or conceit? Are there some things that we can do of our own accord, of out of vanity? No, not one thing. We're to consider other people as more significant, as more important, as better, as some translations say. But then you're saying, all right, John, but it says verse 4, says, let each of you look not only to his own interests. Shouldn't I look to my own interests, right, if it says that? Well, obviously, there, you, you have some interests that you need to look to. If you don't sleep, if you don't eat, if you don't drink water, you're not going to last long. There are other things uh, in, that, in that spectrum of things that you need to do. But in the end, are you doing so for self-centered reasons? Are you doing so for self-glory? Now, I, I'm going to predict that when I go home today, I'm going to take a nap because that's just like a Sunday thing. I got to take a nap. I get so worn out after Sunday. If I go home and I take a nap, but in doing so, I'm ignoring my wife, I'm ignoring my kids, I'm letting them, letting her do all the work, and one of them's screaming, and the other one's, you know, throwing food all over the place, and actually I said one of them's screaming, probably more than one is screaming, and I just say, peace out, I'm going to go upstairs, I'm going to take a nap. Uh, I am not considering my wife as better than myself in that moment. Now, the reality is, she loves me, and she's going to let me take a nap, and she's probably not going to push back on it. But what am I doing in that moment? I'm not considering her as better than myself. I'm considering myself as num- number one. So thinking through these things, it takes wisdom. It takes consideration. It takes a lot of preaching to yourself in the moment. This idea of humility is it's central to the teachings of Scripture and the teachings of Jesus. In our culture, and in many cultures around the world, Pride is considered to be a virtue. But the Bible is absolutely opposed to this notion. Okay, if you're taking notes, I'm going to drop a bunch of verses again, okay? James 4, 6, and 1 Peter 5, 5. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you're, if you're in pride, God is opposed to you. Do you hear that? Do you feel that? The God of the universe is opposed to you? Proverbs 11:2 When pride comes then comes disgrace but with the humble is wisdom Proverbs 29:23 One's pride will bring him low but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor 
And pride is divisive. And the reason it's divisive is because it promotes yourself above others. And thereby saying, there's a distinction between me and you. I'm, I'm better than you are. And thereby disrupts that whole mutual nature of a need for Jesus within the church. And pride is sneaky. It disguises itself as righteousness. The Pharisees did not see themselves as self-righteous, but they were. They knew the scriptures well, but they were filled with themselves. Pride is so sneaky, in fact, that I bet many of us are thinking of somebody else that we think should hear the sermon rather than thinking of ourselves. Oh, I really wish so-and-so were here to, here to this. He could really use this sermon. But we're not really thinking about whether or not we are proud. And in that moment, we are condescending towards somebody else. Christ was not arrogant. Christ was humble. He treated others as better than himself. Let me ask you, what would happen if every relationship you were in was transformed by this notion that the other person was more significant than you. Now, I'm not talking about just bowing to people and, uh, you know, if you've got a role of authority that you wouldn't have authority anymore. I'm just simply saying that you would consider their well-being to be of more appropriate to advance than your own. What about that coworker that talks bad about you? Are you going to return the favor and talk bad about them? Are you going to treat her to lunch and figure out what's going on because you consider her more important than yourself? Maybe you have an argument with your spouse. Are you going to hold a grudge, give the cold shoulder? Or will you take your own part and whatever blame you can and be the first to apologize? Because you consider your spouse as better than yourself. Maybe you've got a superior at work that doesn't do things the way that you think that she should. Are you going to talk bad about that person? Are you going to grumble or complain? Or are you going to make your concerns known appropriately and then just leave it up to her because that person is more significant than you are and you really feel that. That's the posture of your heart. What if somebody says something online you don't agree with? Are you going to blow up and chastise them or will you give them grace and assume the best possible interpretation? Friends, these are our everyday circumstances, and they all call for a posture of humility. One of the reasons I think we may be isolating ourselves from others is because deep down somewhere, we might not confess it outright, but that we consider other people that they're just, they're just not worth our time. They're not really worthy of our friendship or our attention. You know, you always got that guy that's talking to you a lot about his concerns, and you're kind of watch, checking your watch. Um, maybe there's somebody at work that you feel like is needy. Um, it could be any number of things. But a lot of times we end up narrowing our criteria of people who can be our friends to such a degree where we just end up isolating ourselves. And our friendships are limited because we just we can't stand other people who aren't like us. Friends, we need to be humble with each other. We need to broaden our friendships. We need to be a church that is unified and looks to each other and is humble with one another. We need to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. It takes practice. It takes self-evaluation. And it takes a lot of growing and maturing. 
We should have this mindset and posture of humility because it's embodied by our shared Savior, and that's Jesus Christ. Look in verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, Christ had this mind that we're talking about. Christ did nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. He considered us better than himself. Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, the King of kings, considered us better than himself. Does that not shock us, uproot us just a little bit, just to think that the one who created the cosmos would lift us up in such a way where we would, he would consider us better than himself? And spoiler alert, none of us are better than Jesus, but he treats us as such. How did he do this? Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And we say grasped, and a lot of times we use the word grasped colloquially, right? Uh, as if somebody can't understand something. But it's not that Jesus didn't understand that he was in the form of God. He couldn't grasp it. We're talking about actual physical grasping. And the idea in Greek actually carries with it an idea of almost like snatching or maybe uh, using something to your own advantage. And Jesus didn't do this. But you know what? He was in very nature God. He had every right. Every right to be praised. He, was des he deserved the praise of people. He deserved more than what he allowed himself. He was in very nature God. And yet he emptied himself. Now think about the ways that he humbled himself. This is like, this is multi-tier humbling that Jesus is doing. Jesus was in very nature God, but he humbled himself and became a man. Not only did he become a man, he became a servant. Not only did he become a servant, he became a, a servant to the point of death. Not just death, but death on a cross. And not just death on a cross to endure physical pain, but death hold, uh, taking on the wrath of God for our behalf. Do you see the way that Christ is just superior in his humility. Christ embodied humility like no other. No other man deserved so much but became so little. No other man started so lofty and became so lowly. What other man left the heavens to take on flesh? Is that any one of us? No? What other man is sinless like Christ? Anybody here sinless? Nope. What other man is in very nature God, was before all things and in all, all things holds together? Who else deserves the praises of angels? Who else will reign as king for all eternity? Is Christ not of higher esteem than any other person who ever lived? And yet, he humbled himself, emptied himself to death on a cross. How many of us are holding on to some kind of title or position for ourselves. 
Maybe it's your position at work, and you think, I, I deserve better than this. I'm the boss. Uh, maybe it's a coworker that is uh, working against you. Whatever it may be, often we, co- we go to our titles and our positions, whatever they may be, and say, I don't deserve this because I have this title and I have this right. We say, I don't deserve this. I deserve better than this. I deserve more. Let's say for the sake of argument that you do deserve more. Does Christ's humility not compel you? Does this humility not compel you to stop grasping for that which is rightfully yours? I mean, Jesus was in very nature God. He didn't count it as something to be grasped, to use to his advantage. Has he, though sinless, not emptied himself for your sake? Can we, though sinful, not empty ourselves for others' sakes? No other man deserves so much, yet became so little. To be humble is to lower yourself in your own eyes, to bear the burdens of others. And in knowing this, we know that we have a great high priest who understands, who understands what it's like to humble yourself and to bear others' burdens. Jesus has been there. Maybe you have people who should listen to your instruction, whether it's children or workers or coworkers, but they ignore you and they rebel. I think Jesus understands that. <laughs> Jesus has been there. Maybe you have people who want to take advantage of you and your generosity. Jesus has been there. Maybe your friends leave you when you need them the most. Jesus has been there. Maybe you find yourself without a place to lay ahead. Jesus has been there. Maybe you're falsely accused in public. Jesus has been there. Maybe you've been insulted, mocked, or beaten. Jesus has been there, friends. And maybe you have to bear someone else's burden, and they're getting away with it. Jesus has been there, and it was for you. You cannot be humbled more than Jesus, because He is holy and perfect and pure and righteous. And we are not. We are sinners saved by grace. To remember Jesus is to remember our place. And we'll experience true unity if we have a mind and posture of Christ together, serving one another, submitting to one another, treating each other like the other person is more significant than we are. This is hard. This goes against our culture. It goes against our nature. But in being humble together, we can be unified. I just encourage you. And find, if you're not a part of a church, find a church that you can be a part of and submit to. Jesus lowered himself to be with people. And as fellow believers, we should at least be able to lower ourselves to be a part of a community in Christ. It's not here elsewhere. We've I would love for you to be a part of a body of believers so that you can practice what it means to be humble. Otherwise, we can isolate ourselves. We can be comfortable on our own as individuals. It's a very American thing to do, to be individual and to not need anybody else. And we can insulate ourselves from being humble like Christ. But you know what? Christ did not insulate, isolate himself in the heavens. Christ came down and made himself lowly. If we're to be unified, we must take this posture of humility. 
Christ, our Savior and Lord, humbled himself perfectly. And for that, we are grateful because we know that we will never be able to do that. So we call on him as Savior. We call on his perfect righteousness. We confess, I got it wrong. I'm sorry. Lord, I need you. He sacrificed himself for us, for all who call on him as Savior as Lord. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we're humbled that you would call us your own. We're humbled that you would give us grace and mercy. Help us to be a people of grace and mercy as we have received it. As people who have experienced your peace, may we be a people of peace. As he has been patient and long-suffering with us, help us to be patient and long-suffering with each other. As we have been forgiven, Lord, help us to forgive. You are far greater than we will ever be, and you humbled yourself to a degree that we will never have to go to. And Lord, we thank you that you did that perfectly for our sake. Help us to have the mind of Christ, to do nothing from rivalry, ambition, or conceit, but in, in humility to consider others better than ourselves. May this mark our lives. May we be a church that is known for our love for each other. And in our imperfection, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be humble with each other. Though imperfect, we pray that you would work to perfect us. And we know that on the final day that you will do that for all who have trusted in you. And our hope is not in this world, but it's in the next. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can look to the age that is to come. Lord, help us to be obedient here, looking forward to what is to come, knowing that we will be saved to sin no more. Lord, I thank you that we get to celebrate baptism this morning. And for the, the work uh, that you have done in Susanna's heart and life and minds and the way that it's represented in baptism, Lord, may this be a time of celebration for us as a church as we celebrate with our sister in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.